Amen. Well, this is one of those passages that offends your modern sensibilities, doesn't it? But I don't need modern sensibilities. I need biblical sense. Amen. And so for those of you who may be visiting, uh, we come to 1 Corinthians 5 because we as a church are preaching through this book, verse by verse, on Sunday mornings throughout this year. And we're doing it, why? Because church matters, amen? The church is the spiritual body of Christ. The church is his physical representation on earth today. And so church matters, and being the right kind of church matters, So we're studying this church at Corinth. Historically, we know when Paul wrote this, they were a relatively new church with relatively new Christians, but it existed in a relatively nasty culture. Now, the church of Corinth had issues not because it existed in a nasty culture, but because the nasty culture had crept into it. We've kind of given the analogy a couple of times. It's the difference between a ship being in water. That's not a bad thing, amen? But when the water gets in the ship, that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for the church to be in the world. It's not a bad thing for Christians to be in the world. But it does become a problem when the world gets in the church. So we're looking at the church of Corinth. We're looking at some of the issues they've had. And you know what? I'm encouraged because I'm reminded that all churches have problems. All churches have problems. And as we talk about this thing that church matters, another way we can even look at that phrase is that all churches have matters that they have to deal with. So far in the book, uh, Paul has dealt with the priority of Christ, the power of the cross. As he has dealt with the partiality and the pride of these people. And really, here in chapter 5, we're beginning a new section. He's moving uh, from talking about division in the church to dealing with matters of discipline in the church. And I'll just tell you, over the next couple of weeks, buckle up. Uh, because he is going to get right down where we live. And so this morning, Paul is dealing with the matter or the issue, uh, an issue that all churches have to deal with, and that is sin. Specifically here, he's dealing with the sin of immorality or sexual sin in the church. And he's going to show us what we need to do as a church when sin gets in. So let's look this morning at God's word together. We're going to begin reading in verse number one. There the Bible says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not mourned, that, the, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. I want you to note, number one, this morning, if you're taking notes, I want you to note the disaster of sin. The disaster of sin. We have here laid out, Paul gives us an example of the disaster of depravity that has crept into the church. Now, Paul doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He, he points out and he calls out the carnal reality that has taken place. He says, there is a believer, one among you, who is engaged in an immoral sexual relationship. Now, church, the biblical sexual ethic is clear. That God has reserved sexual intimacy to be belonging 
to one biological man with one biological woman in monogamous marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That is the biblical sexual ethic. Anything outside of that is sin, period. Period. We'll talk about that more in weeks to come. So we have a believer, one among you, who is engaged in an immoral sexual relationship. Not only is there a carnal reality that exists, but there's callous rebellion. This wasn't something that was just happening. It was open. It was commonly reported. It was well known amongst the believers and the community. It was open and ongoing. When Paul says that one should have his father's wife, it's present tense. That this is something that is open and ongoing. It is still taking place. You have a man here who is engaging in brazen, blatant, unrepentant sin. And Paul said, that's a problem, folks. That's a problem. That's a problem. Paul points out the carnal reality. He points out the callous rebellion and he points out the clear repulsiveness that this level of quasi-incest was even repulsive to the heathens. And yet the church was, eh, we're just glad you're here, brother. Paul said there's a problem with that. The disaster of sin. We see the disaster of depravity. We also see, though, the disaster of desensitization. Because it wasn't just that man that Paul was pointing out. In verse number 2, he moved to the church at Corinth. He said, yes, verse number 1, this man is engaged in depraved sin. But verse number 2, and you, you are puffed up and have not mourned. In other words, the church, in regards to the sin, they were smug and shameless. They were proud of their tolerance. Boy, if that's not 2023. You know, we know it's probably not the best, but boy, brother, we're just glad you're here. They were proud, puffed up of their tolerance, smug and shameless. They were senseless, having no recognition of how dangerous and destructive sin is. They had no concept of what should have been done. Some mock, some tolerate, but few to none were mourning and broken over the disaster of depravity That had crept into the church. Church sin is always a disaster. Sin is always a disaster. Sin is always a disaster. Let me give you a couple of things. I'm going to give you a couple of points at the end of each point. Kind of help you write it down. Kind of hang your hat on some things. Number one, I want us to remember this. That overlooking or tolerating open and ongoing sin. As a church, it is not loving but dangerous. Overlooking and tolerating open and ongoing sin is not loving but dangerous. Why, preacher? Because sin always brings death and destruction. James 1 in verse number 15. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. That is how sin ends. It brings forth death. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Every time. 
every time. And so overlooking or tolerating open, ongoing, unrepentant sin. Church, it is not a loving thing to do. It is a dangerous thing to do. Because in essence, we are watching people run breakneck to their own destruction. And we're doing nothing but patting them on the back along the way. Can I tell you something else? It's because sin doesn't just affect the people who do it. Sin affects those around them. I talked about this with our young people this week in chapel. I had the privilege of preaching chapel this week. We talked about the laws of sowing and reaping. Let me ask you, when the farmer plants, does he plant just for himself? No, we all reap what he sows. In a week or two, when we go down to Amish country or wherever we go, and we get the tomato plants and the zucchini plants and the cucumber plants, and my wife puts them in the ground, is she the only one who eats it? No, I have to, I get to eat it. My kids eat it. If we have a lot, what do we do? We bring it in here and we share with the church and we share with the community. Hey, you're all going to reap what we sow. Can I tell you, when we, when we tolerate open, ongoing, unrepentant sin, here's the thing. It doesn't just affect the people who do it. It will affect us all. And it is not loving and it is not good to just clap for people as they head for destruction. What if a child is reaching for a bottle of poison? Would we say, oh no, let's just be loving and let him decide. He knows what's best. His heart tells him that's what he really wants. Is that what we do? No, what do we do? We smack his hand. We say, stop it. Church, it might offend your modern sensibility. It might cause people to say we're legalistic, but it's not true. Because overlooking and tolerating open, ongoing, unrepentant sin is not loving, but dangerous. Let me give you another important thought here to help you as you... We navigate this thing, the disaster of sin. What, what, ha- what do we do what, when sin gets in? Number two, consider this. There's an important distinction between someone who wants better and someone who knows better and doesn't care. There's an important distinction to be made between someone who wants better and is struggling and someone who knows better but just doesn't care. You see, you can help someone who wants better. You can help them get back up. If they fall seven times, you can help them get back up. You see, you can help someone who wants better get back on track. Yeah, they get a little skewed this way or that way, but they want better, so you can help them. There is no helping someone who knows better and doesn't care. Proverbs 26, 12 puts it this way. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. This person is a slanderer. This person is a rebel. And there is no helping someone who knows better and just doesn't care. Church sin is always a disaster. We have to understand that from time to time... The disaster of sin will make its way into the sanctuary. But we have to respond correctly. So what do we see? Number one, we see the disaster of sin. 
But let's look what Paul says the response ought to be. Let's look together at verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. That in the name of Jesus, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, let's read verse 5 together in unison, shall we? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we see, number one, we see the disaster of sin. Number two, this morning, we need to understand the discipline of sinners. The discipline of the sinner. Church discipline is biblical. And it is right. But it follows a rule of faith. Because church discipline is not something that a pastor has developed. And it's not something that Paul developed. It's something that Jesus decreed. It is in, did you notice, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see, really, church discipline begin to be laid out in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse number 15. Here Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go, tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. By the way, let me point out there that, that church discipline ends when the sinner repents. When the person says, you know what, you're right, I, I have sinned against God, I need to repent of this sin, I need to make it right. At that point, this whole process stops. And we restore such a one as in the spirit of humility. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 16. But, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17, and if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. You see, this thing of church discipline, calling sin, sin, and addressing the sinner that commits the sin... This is not something that a pastor developed. This is not something that Paul developed. This is something that Jesus decreed. It's in his name. It's in his power that the church addresses sin. And it has to be done by the rule of faith. So much so that church, understand this. That if we as a church refuse to address sin, that we are just as much refusing the authority of God as the one who's living in open moral rebellion. Because just as he looks at God and says, I don't care what God says, when we refuse to address sin biblically, we are in essence looking at God and say, God, I know what you said, but I'm not doing it that way. And that is rebellion. The discipline of sinners, it follows a rule of faith. And it calls, if the individual will not repent, it calls for a removal of, from fellowship. The unrepentant one is to be removed from the fellowship of the church. Now again, if someone repents, the process stops. And we restore. But when one says, I am going to sin and I don't care. They live in open, ongoing, unrepentant sin. We as a church 
are to remove them from the fellowship of the church. And by the way, this is a clear and oft-repeated command in Scripture. Romans 16 and verse 17. Look with me. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine ye have learned. And do what? And avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Titus chapter 3 and verse number 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition. What do we do? Reject him. This is not an isolated thing in 1 Corinthians 5. In fact, there are many other passages we can look at. But when someone refuses to repent of their open sin, when someone refuses to submit to Christ, the only option we have as a church at that point is to remove them from fellowship. Now, this is a physical act with spiritual consequence. Did you note that in verse number 5? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In essence, they are taking, spiritually, they are taken out from under the sphere of the covering and protection of the church. Think of it this way. Uh, the Bible often likens us to sheep. So long as the sheep are in the fold, so long as the sheep are under the watchful care of the shepherd or even the under-shepherd, there is a level of protection that exists from the threats that are without. However, when that sheep is removed from the fold... And he no longer has the walls, the boundaries, the shepherd and the under-shepherd to watch over him. The threats to that sheep are exponentially increased. And don't you forget that the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so removal from fellowship is a corporate act of the church. It is a physical act with spiritual consequences But do you know why God calls for the discipline of sinners? You know, yes, it follows a rule of faith, and yes, it does require removal from the fellowship, but there is a reason. And the reason, the reason for church discipline is for restoration. The goal of church discipline is never punitive. We're never looking to just punish people. Well, you were bad, so now we got to punish you. That is not the goal of church discipline. The goal of church discipline is never punitive. It's never in anger or hate. It's never in pride. It is always in broken humility. The goal is restoration. I want you to see what Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, beginning in verse 14. He says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now that's familiar to us. We've looked at a number of verses like that. But look at Paul's clarifying comments in verse 15. Yet count him not as an enemy. But what are we doing? We are admonishing him as a brother. And so it reaches this point where their sin has been addressed and the sin has been addressed and the sin has been addressed, but they refuse to repent. They refuse to submit themselves to God. 
And so we get to the point where we have to remove them from the fellowship. But the goal is not punitive, it is restorative. We admonish them, not as an enemy, but as a brother. The spirit of church discipline is never a self-righteous one. And what is the prayer? The prayer is that the discipline provides a shock to the system whereby the offending one will recognize the severity of what they have done. And they will put to death their flesh and return to submission to Christ. By the way, this is exactly what happened here at Corinth. If you go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe Paul is addressing this very situation. Beginning in verse number 6. Paul said, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was was inflicted of many. So the church at Corinth actually did this to this man. They called him for his sin. They removed him from the fellowship. And Paul says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. Verse number 7. Look what it says. So that contrawise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Verse 8. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. So in other words, this did provide that shock to the man. He did get himself right with God. And what's Paul's instruction? Forgive him. Restore him. And receive him again. That is always the reason for church discipline. That is always the prayer of church discipline. Not to destroy people. Not to swallow them up in, in guilt and despair. Not to, not, 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 not to push them out forever. But no, provide that mechanism which the Lord can use to bring them to the end of their selves. That they might repent and truly come to Christ. Come back to Christ. So let me give you a couple of thoughts here for the discipline of the sinner. Church confronting sin is not optional. It is essential. For us as a church, confronting sin is not optional. It is essential. To refuse to confront Sin is to refuse to obey Christ. It is absolutely the job of the church to follow the judgments given by Jesus. Modern sensibility says, oh, judge not that you be not judged. Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus has already passed judgment. And we as his church simply hold to his judgments. It's not my judgments you have to worry about anyways. You say, preacher, have we ever had to do that? Yeah, we've had to do that. Depending on how public the sin often depends on how public the discipline. Again, this man was over the top public. It was commonly reported among everybody. But yes, we've had to do this. You see, but here's what often happens today. People leave First Baptist Church, and where do they go? Second Baptist Church. People leave Second Baptist Church, and where do they go? Third Baptist Church. People leave Third Baptist Church. Where do they go? The Methodist Church. I don't know. Uh, They just keep going. They just keep going. Preacher, have we ever had to do this? Yes, we've had to do this. And I'm going to tell you, church, man, we've got to be biblical in this. 
you know, there's been, one, there's been an instance in my ministry where we've had to deal with things like this. And, and because of what the extent was, I, I felt strongly led of the Holy Spirit that, that I needed to call the next pastor. And just said, you need to know what's sitting in the pew of Second Baptist Church. You know the response I got? Mind your own business. Basically, they're our tither now. Church, for us not to confront sin is to refuse to obey Christ. Confronting sin is not optional, but essential. Let me give you another thought here. Number two, confronting sin and church discipline is an incredibly serious action with incredibly serious consequences. Confronting sin and church discipline is incredibly serious action with incredibly serious consequences. Then it behooves us to make sure that our church discipline is seriously scriptural. We've drawn some silly lines in the sand in the past as a church, in general. I mean, I've known of churches, I've even been a part of churches, where you would be disciplined to a certain extent if you wore a certain color shirt to the service. Where's that in this book? I mean, we've picked and we've fussed and we've feuded over, uh, over colored shirts or colored ties or what, what kind of rims you have on your glasses or whether or not you go here or you go there. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of things that we can agree and a lot of things that we can disagree on and a lot of the things we can generally agree or disagree on. But the reality is, if we're moving to church discipline, you better understand this is an incredibly serious action and we better make sure that we are seriously biblical in what we're doing. God has not, God has not uh, enlisted any of us to be spiritual bouncers, guarding our own petty preferences. And the reality is we all have fragile feet of clay, so we better be careful what we do with the stones. Confronting sin and church discipline is an incredibly serious action with incredibly serious consequences. So we see the disaster of sin. We see the discipline of sinner. But I want you to see finally this morning the danger to the saints. The danger to the saint. Look at verse 6 through the end of the chapter. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump. For ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. What have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So we've seen the, 
the disaster of sin. We've seen the discipline of the sinner. But thirdly, this morning, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here, all right? So don't pack up. Let's, let's, let's lock in. Amen? Let's look at the danger to the saint. We find here in verses 6, 7, and 8 really a call of warning. And that's this reality. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Those of you who are bakers know that, that a little leaven goes a long way. And a little leaven affects the entirety of that dough. Like poison seeping into a city uh, or the water supply is sin that is allowed to remain within the congregation. Why? Because the Bible is clear that filth and faith don't mix. And church, hear me. You are not smarter than God. And you are not the exception to this rule. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 33 says this, Be not deceived. Evil communications or or evil friendships, what do they do? They corrupt good manners. Proverbs 13 and verse number 20 says this, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it is a call to warning. Just as a little leaven affects the whole dough, so a little sin affects the whole body. We cannot join ourselves with sin and not be negatively affected. We have a call of warning, but we also have a call to wisdom. Paul says in verse number 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So it seems like 1 Corinthians isn't actually 1 Corinthians. It seems like Paul had previously written a letter to them uh, that was not inspired like 1 or 2 Corinthians. And in that book, Paul had told them not to keep company with those sexually immoral people. And it seems like the church kind of got a little squirrely on it. Uh, They got a little bit confused where... They weren't going to like have any company with anybody anywhere ever who's a fornicator. And so Paul says, that's not what I meant. Uh, Because you look at the people who are sexually, if if you tried to remove yourself from the sexually immoral people of this world, uh, you would basically have to leave this world. You contact them everywhere. And so it's not that Paul is saying that we are not to have contact with sexually immoral or immoral people. Like I said, if that were true, uh, we would only have a couple of options. Number one, change the rules and start a cult. Or number two, get on Elon Musk's rocket to Mars. But that blew up. (laughs) But by the way, sometimes you look at the sexual immorality of the world, and what do we want to do? We want to isolate. We want to circle the wagons. We want to huddle up. We want to just... No, no, no. We're still called to be a witness. We're still called to be a light. We're still called to be salt. What good is light if it doesn't touch the darkness? What good is salt if it doesn't flavor the food or arrest the corruption? So it's not that we are not to have contact with immoral people. And I, it's not even, Paul's not even saying that we're not to uh, have contact with struggling saints. What Paul sa- is saying is that we cannot join our lives to people who are not going the same way we are. It is a practical impossibility for us to have true fellowship, true company, true communion, true friendships with people who are not going the same way we are. And it is when people, especially believers, 
Paul says, one that is called a brother. He said, you know, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. We're not really talking about the world right now. He said, one who, who calls themselves a brother, one who refers to themselves as a believer, when they live in open rebellion to Christ, you know what it does? It destroys any depth of commonality or connection that we could ever have. And it even sets us at odds. Because for someone to love the world is for them to be at enmity with God. Paul said, with such an one, don't even eat. Now I'll tell you, there's varying degrees about what that might mean. Was Paul talking about the Lord's Supper? That they should be refused the Lord's Supper? Was, was Paul talking about uh, like church fellowships, like love feasts that they would have? Was Paul talking about just in general? If someone's going to live in defiant, unrepentant, open rebellion before God, don't have coffee and a biscuit with them. Is that what, is that what Paul meant? Is that what the Holy Spirit meant? And honestly, I would say yes to all three. Because you cannot have a true connection or friendship with someone who is not heading the same way. You can minister, you can love, you can pray, but you can't really share life. And so it is a call of warning. Church, we are not smarter than God. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And it is a call to wisdom that when somebody decides to live an open, unrepentant sin against God, especially when they claim the name of Christ, we are to separate ourselves from them so much so that with such M1, no, not to eat. Now let me give you a couple of applications, all right? When it comes to people who can attend here at Harvest, we're just going to get practical this morning, amen? All who come here in good faith are welcome to be here. All who come here in good faith are welcome to be here. What do you mean? What does good faith mean? Good faith means someone who comes sincerely. Someone who comes sincerely seeking truth. Someone who comes sincerely seeking the Lord. Someone who comes sincerely seeking help. What does not good faith mean? Not, when somebody comes in not good faith, they've come to make a statement. They've come to create a stir. They've come to cause a scene. That's not what we're here for. And if that's what you're here for, you're not welcome here. Period. Now, I don't care who you are. If you come in good faith, you're welcome. But if you have come to create a scene, you are not welcome. Because this is not about you create. This is not your platform. This is his. By the way, we'll have an election again. Guess what? Please don't come to church looking to make a statement for your favorite candidate. I'm not saying there's not a time for you to do that. But I'm saying this is not the time for you to do that. We're here to worship God. But that goes for the world. We're going to have, the depravity of the world keeps going the way it's going. Uh, We're going to have some real interesting situations with people who come to church sincerely seeking truth. Wonderful. Welcome. Let me tell you about my Jesus. But we may also have some people who don't come sincerely seeking truth. They've come to make a statement. And if they come to make a statement, then you did not come in good faith then you are not welcome here. But church, we need to have this down. This goes back to the difference between knows better and wants better. Anybody who comes in good faith 
They may not be dressed exactly like we want them to be. They, they may not have the lifestyle like they should. They may have made a whole lot of big mistakes in their past. They may be making a whole lot of big mistakes right now, but if they come in good faith, they are welcome to be here. Period. All who come here in good faith are welcome to be here. If you don't come in good faith, you're not. And we'll deal with it accordingly. Number two, this is more of a personal thing for you. As Christians, we're called to be friendly with all, but close friends with few. As Christians, we're called to be friendly with all. There are, there are no rewards in heaven for the jerks for Jesus club. I, I, I don't care who they are, what they've done. We, we, will, we will handle things in love, amen? As Christians, we are called to be friendly with all, but really close friends with few. Why? Because I can only truly connect my life with people who were headed the same direction I am. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Boy, it's important to define our terms, is it not? Is a Christian someone who comes to church? Is a Christian someone who generally believes that there is a God? Is a Christian someone that knows that Jesus loves them? Is that what a Christian is? No. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian, by definition, is one who knows and follows Christ. Is one who knows and follows Christ and is being formed into the image of Christ. Therefore, a Christian, by definition, is one who lives in submission to Jesus. Not that we never struggle, not that there aren't ups and downs, but as a Christian, my heart is to be surrendered to Jesus. That is what a Christian is. Therefore, someone who chooses to live in open, ongoing, unrepentant sin is not living as a Christian. They're not. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Look what it says. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We're going to see in weeks to come that, that these are marks. People who choose to live in open unrepentant sin, these are marks not of saved people but of unsaved people. Let me ask you, somebody who chooses to not live as a Christian, how can we as Christians truly share our lives with them? Amos 3.3 puts it this way. Can two walk together except they be agreed? I need a partner for this. Let's see. Let's see. Who's going to be my, my lucky victim today? Let's see. But Frank, birthday boy, let's do this, all right? Brother Frank's a Christian. Here, we'll come over here. I'm not sure if those mics are on. He gets all squeaky on the feed. If I get my mic and I stand under the under mic. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. So, so here we go. So here we go. We're walking together, right? Yeah, we can lock arms. It's all right. All right. So we're, we're headed. We're, we're headed towards the cross, right? We're going together. But then, you know, I know you want to follow Jesus and all that. But I, I really got a pension for the drink, man. And... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm going to go get drunk. All right? All right? So I'm, I'm going to go get, you, you, you guys are my drunkards then because that's where I stop. <laughs> we're hanging out together. Woo! Let me ask you, if I start going this way with the drunkards, can we really share life anymore? No. 
No. So we're going, right? We're going. We're back on track. We're, we're following Christ. We're walking together. This is great. This is great. But now, oh, man. Oh, man. You know what? I'm going to talk about sexual immorality. I'm going to cheat on my wife. I'm gonna, don't, don't you like to look at pornography, too? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You, you guys are my immoral people, all right? You're my immoral peeps. How are you doing? Let me ask you, if I start going this way, where are you headed? You headed with me? Where are you headed? Why? Because he's following Jesus. See, here's the thing. We're like, oh, it's so mean. We're pushing people out. No, no, no. We are simply recognizing the fact that they have chosen to no longer follow Jesus. All we're doing, we didn't leave, they did. We didn't walk away from Christ, they did. We didn't, they did. We are simply making the recognition that our lives are not going the same direction anymore. And if our lives are no longer going, keep, keep following Christ, brother. Let me ask you, now turn around. How much life do we really share at this point? Not much. Not much. Frank can love me. He can pray for me. He, he can re- but, but can he really have intimate, close, real, shared life fellowship with me? Not at this point. He can't. He can't. And for him to pretend otherwise, what would he have to do? What, what would you have to do, Frank? Show, show us. What would you have to do? Come on. Yep. He'd have to walk away from Christ and walk in the wrong direction. That would be the only way we could truly share life again. Thank you, sir. Does that make sense, church? Does that make sense? We're called to be friendly with all, but close friends with few. Why? Because to be a friend, if I'm a Christian, by definition, I am following Christ. Therefore, by practical implication, I can only truly share life with other people who are also following Christ. Faith cannot fellowship with filth. So number two, we're called to be friendly with all but close friends with few. You guys have listened so well. We're almost done. One more. Number three. Judgment starts at the house of God. Paul says, yeah, the world's going to world. Sinner's going to sin. He said, but for what do I do For what, verse 12, he said, for what have I to do to judge them that are without? You know, sometimes it's easy for us in the church to get up and say, ah, look at all the worldly people doing all the worldly things. Sinners, 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 gross, 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 ah. And we do that, right? And we all feel good about ourselves. Paul said, no, 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 judgment starts at the house of God. He said, God will take care of the world. That's his jurisdiction. Our jurisdiction is not the world, it is the fold. And here's the thing, all right? You with me this morning? Say amen. Amen. A little more humility, a little more honesty, a little less hypocrisy would probably go a long way. You see, we in the church, we're quick to go, oh, I'm not perfect. But don't you dare point out something I'm specifically doing wrong. Oh, I know I'm not perfect, but how dare you suggest I have a problem? That's what we do. A little more humility. A 
a little more honesty, a little less hypocrisy would probably go a long way to allowing the church to have greater peace, greater power, and greater purpose than it's ever had before. If you're here this morning listening, I want you to know God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, I want you to know that you're a sinner. God already knows that. It's not a surprise to him. But God loves you so much that he gave his son for you. Jesus came to you when you could not go to him because the penalty of your sin was death. Jesus died. He died your death that you might receive his life. And I want you to know this morning that all are welcome at the cross. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. All are welcome at the cross. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. If you have any questions about what it means to turn to Jesus, to receive him as your Savior, I want you to get my attention, get someone's attention. Come to know Jesus today. I'm going to tell you, (laughs) sin is always a disaster. Sin always brings death. But the Savior, he will forgive you. He will adopt you into his family. There's no life like the Christian life. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. Struggling saint, can I ask you, honestly, this, why? Why hold on to your sin for one more day? Why? Why look at God and say, God, I know you said, but I'm going to. Why? Why for one more day would we hold on to our sin? It adds nothing but pain. It has nothing but, but guilt and shame. It, it does nothing but keep us from God's will. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. Why? Why would we for one more moment knowingly refuse God's will to hold on to our wickedness? Why? 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 Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus where sin does abound. Grace does much more abound. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what you've done or even how long you've done it. When you turn to Jesus, there is grace. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is peace. Why would you knowingly refuse His will to hold on to your wickedness? Christian, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. For all of us, a little prevention goes a long way. You know, it never has to get to this point. If we would on a regular basis examine ourselves, ask the Spirit of God to search us, to know us, to try us, to see if there be any wicked way in us. You see, if I would judge myself, I wouldn't need to be judged by others. I wonder today, we would ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and we would do what we know we need to do when sin gets in.